The following episode can be viewed on the YouTube channel Bernie or Bust Television. Good morning, USA, and welcome to another episode of the Bernie or Bust Show. Many thanks to Kyle Kalinsky for this clip where Jimmy Carter brilliantly explains how the establishment gave us Trump. Both explain the rise of authoritarianism. How, where does it? What's this coming from? She said, "How do you explain the rise of authoritarianism?" And she's saying Trump really is authoritarianism, and I'm not sure that's fair. But we'll we'll talk about it in a minute. Well, I think the root of it is something that I haven't heard discussed much. I told a group today that in 1999 at the end of the last millennium, in the beginning of 2000, I was asked to make speeches in uh, Oslo, Norway, and also in, in uh, Taiwan. And my subject was, what is the greatest challenge to be faced by the next century? And I said, the, the disparity between rich people and poor people. And I think that that is the case, not only between people who live in a country, but also between nations. And I believe that the root of, uh, of a downturn in human rights preceded 2016. It began earlier than that. And I think the reason was the disparity in income, which has been translated into the average person, you know, good, decent, hardworking, middle-class people feeling that they are getting cheated by the government and by... So he's talking about hard working middle-class people, and people perceived him that way, more as a populist. And I'm old enough to remember, I voted for him, and I remember perceiving him as a peanut farmer from Georgia. I, I felt like he was a regular guy, not a condescending, Harvard-educated elitist. A society, and they don't get the same uh, element of, uh, of health care, they don't get the same quality education, they don't get the same political rights, particularly after the stupid decision of the Supreme Court on Citizens United, but it said that there's an unlimited amount of money going into campaigns. But now they feel that in, even in politics, their choice of a candidate to be president or governor or congressman or whoever uh, is not the same as a rich person's. And also, once that candidate gets in office, if it's successful, quite often the average person feels that they are repaying their contributions with legal, legal bribery, and it's legal. And the justice system has also gone down. Long before we had this last election, when I left the White House, for instance, one out of a thousand people were in prison. Now, seven people out of a thousand in prison. Seven times as many people who are Americans are now in prison as they were just when I left the White House. So the, the feeling of an average person that I'll be treated fairly by the justice system is missing. So, you know, basic human rights, income, status in society, health care, education, participation in politics, justice, the things in which we used to have complete faith now have been distorted by the rich people getting richer and the poor people getting poorer. And when the rich people 
uh, get a candidate in office, they can be sure that the tax laws and everything else are going to keep them getting richer and richer, but the average person suffers. So I think that's I think that dissatisfaction with the existing system of politics resulted in the outcome of the election in, in, in 2016 in the United States. People were willing just to take a chance and to abandon democracy and, and what we know about is, is basic principles and try something new, no matter what it was. So there you go. Whatever it was, there's just no better way to explain it. Income inequality is why we have Trump. That's it. Now, I, I made that crack about Harvard. I, I was educated in a place like Harvard, even though it's the West Coast version. Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington is a lot like Harvard in the way, in the kind of education it provides and the kind of attitudes, perhaps, that people can learn there. And I have to say, a lot of my fellow witties are very compassionate when it comes to poor people. And a lot of Harvard grads are very compassionate when it comes to poor people. But there's a, an angle, there's a way of looking at life that makes someone like Elizabeth Warren appealing because she has merit. She has a plan for that. She has a good resume. She's done the things that people who go to Harvard and Whitman do to get ahead in life. We earned it, damn it. And we're really smart, damn it. And, and on and on. But that, that puts us out of touch if we're not careful, it puts us out of touch with the kinds of people who love Bernie Sanders because the demographics of Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg are clearly different than the demographics for Bernie and for Donald Trump. And so Jimmy Carter here is, is being fair to Donald Trump by saying that the reason people gave him a chance, let's give it a whirl, is because of the desperation and the people who are more comfortable that, and we've been picking on them since the Bernie or Bus show started. The people who are more comfortable don't feel the desperation that led to Donald Trump. So they're just willing to call the people who support him a basket of deplorables and leave it at that. No further, no further thought necessary. Let's just knee-jerk and say that everybody who could vote for Donald Trump is less than... And that's a dehumanizing thing that we talked about in the comments video yesterday, that it's too easy to put people in a category of other and then discount them. And calling Trump supporters a basket of deplorables is dehumanizing. And it isn't fair. And it's not going to help our country. And it's not going to help our world if we, if we look at life like that. I got a comment from HM who asked me to please discuss Bernie or Trump. It's not a vote out of spite. We just hate the rest of Dem candidates very much. And that sounds bad on the face of it. We hate the Democrat candidates. But I think what, what anyone, any Trump supporter would hate the most about Democratic candidates is their condescension. And condescension is dehumanizing. It's ugly. And I would, I would not blame someone if they felt hatred towards someone else who had a sneering, snarling, condescending attitude. And we've talked about that attitude. Mimi Roca is a great example of, of a sneering, snarling Democrat. She drips with condescension. And Hillary Clinton drips with condescension. And when you look at that attitude, it's, it's not difficult to understand why HM here feels hatred. 
And then my answer was, if the mainline Democrat voters hate Trump as much as they say they do, they will pay attention in the end one way or another. Supporters such as yourself, who will either vote for Bernie running as a Democrat if he receives the nomination versus voting directly for the Republican in the general election if he doesn't, are doubling their bite at the apple. The margin of victory should be close nationally and even closer in the battleground states. They ignored you last time, and all signs point to your leverage being even greater this time. You can't underplay the double bite at the apple. Staying home is one thing, but voting directly for the opponent doubles your power, doubles your leverage, and that's what Bernie or Trumpers are doing this time, probably even more than last time. And last time, it's clear if you if you look at Victor Tiffany's video on um, climate2020.us. If you look at that first video, it's clear that the Bernie or Trumpers alone, without any other help, denied Hillary the White House. So this comment, it's not a huge segment of the population, but um, ignore it at your peril. Now, the, the problems that Jimmy Carter is discussing of income inequality and how people feel about the system as it as it now stands is really easy to see in the in South America Central America I wanted to I, you you may wonder why I'm jumping here to the IMF but if you think about it think about what Jimmy Carter just said and then think about how the IMF has been operating and still apparently is operating meet the new IMF same as the old IMF and we're going to be in Ecuador here. Ecuador has erupted in protests over its new IMF program, revealing just how little progress the fund has made. The International Money Fund has changed. Gone are the days when it would use its lending powers to strong-arm countries into adopting a slate of free market reforms that put the interests of investors before those of the people. Or so it claims. The IMF truly has progressed since the heyday of the Washington Consensus in the 1990s. Combating inequality has been incorporated into its mandate and is now one of its own criteria for success, at least nominally. Capital controls, previously frowned upon by many mainstream economists as an impediment to globalization, are now recognized as a potentially useful tool for developing countries and concerted, if inconsistent, efforts have been made to reduce the burden of conditions attached to IMF loans. These are real improvements, and commendations are due to those inside and outside the organization who fought for them, but beneath these much-publicized reforms, the fundamental structure of the IMF's approach remains. Going on about the improved IMF, I had to find the rest of the story. The other one petered out on me. This is the source of the first story, Michael Gallant, December 4th, 2019. And these two paragraphs are what I already read. And this one, I think I did too. These are real improvements and commendations are due to those inside and outside the organization who fought for them. But beneath these much publicized reforms, the fundamental structure of the IMF's approach remains the same. Today, as before, the organization privileges the interests of businesses and investors over the needs of the people it purports to help. Nowhere is this clearer than in Ecuador, where President Lenin Moreno's implementation of a $4.2 billion IMF loan agreement sparked a wave of mass protests 
led by a coalition of students, workers, and indigenous groups. Moreno came to power in 2017 after the left-leaning former president Rafael Correa's occasionally deficient but generally successful decade in office. From 2006 to 2016, per capita GDP growth rates more than doubled on average and inequality fell considerably. The percentage of people living in extreme poverty, defined as those earning roughly $48 per month or less in today's dollars, was cut almost by half, in part due to significant increases in social spending on health, education, and housing. Jimmy Carter would be impressed with this. Much of these gains were enabled by an extractive development model and windfall from high international oil prices, but when those prices plummeted in 2014, Correa's administration weathered the storm better than many other oil-exporting countries, in some measure due to Ecuador's intentional default on $3.2 billion of historical debt that Correa criticized as illegitimate. After winning an election campaign during which he promised to continue Correa's policies, Moreno unexpectedly broke from his predecessor and shifted the country sharply rightward. The IMF agreement, signed in March, solidified this shift and reveals how little the IMF has really changed. First and foremost, the agreement is a classic austerity package, mandating dramatic cuts in public spending on the order of 6% of GDP over three years. Jimmy Carter didn't talk about austerity packages, but they, are, they apply to the United States as well. And this is why we have problems with, with unions. We have the Chicago teacher strike. We have wildcat strikes in red states. Teacher, teachers are striking without their union leadership. We have this unrest all over the world and all over this country that comes from imposed austerity where the rich people are saying we need to tighten our belts so that they can have even more of our productivity. Mark Weisbrot, co-director of the Washington-based Center for Economic and Policy Research, estimates that this budget tightening will entail firing tens of thousands of public sector employees raising taxes that fall disproportionately on poor people and making cuts to public investment. This, in turn, will lead to higher unemployment, an increase in poverty, and an economic downturn that will be longer and deeper than even the IMF's own projected recession. The country's current unrest was sparked by one piece of this austerity program, a sudden and significant cut to fuel subsidies. So if you look around the world, what often throws the match onto the tinder is a, a fuel tax or a transportation tax, something where bus rates go up or a fuel subsidy is removed, something like that. But the bigger problem is that the rich are getting richer, obscenely richer, and the poor are we're balancing the, the wealth of the rich on the backs of the poor people. And that's what Jimmy Carter was talking about. And that's what Bernie or Bust is all about. Because if you could vote for Elizabeth Warren, she's not even a cheap imitation of Bernie. If you could vote for Biden, you're voting to continue to crush poor people. And if you have a good education and you're down with that, then I have a problem with you. I might even call you an asshole. And I've been, I've been uh, criticized for that. But if the shoe fits... I'd say you need to wear it because 
the poor people that suffer all over the world aren't going to get relief without our help, without more highly educated, more affluent people. We are all in this together. And if you think you're a liberal, and, and that means your heart bleeds for those who are oppressed, you've got another thing coming. That, that isn't compassion. That isn't empathy. Phil Oakes, in his wonderful song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, has some things to tell you as well. He started a live version of this song with this speech. In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals, an outspoken group on many subjects. Ten degrees to the left of center in good times, ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. In the notes, in the liner notes on this, it says, Love Me, I'm a Liberal is about those that sensed the political shift occurring in the 1960s United States. Those that sought to call themselves liberal, but had very little understanding of liberal beliefs. This song is Phil Oak's demonstration of his hatred of the hypocritical. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. Who's Medgar Evers? This is a reference to civil rights activist Medgar Evers, who was assassinated in Mississippi in 1963. So Mississippi was a hotbed of awfulness, and Medgar Evers was right in the middle of it. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy, as though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. Hmm, what does that mean? Malcolm X was assassinated in February 1965. The speaker in this song, the supposed liberal who's narrating this song, is very upset about two moderate lefties being killed, JFK and Medgar Evers, but thinks that Malcolm X deserved to be killed because he was too radical. This is referring to, probably, Malcolm X's advocacy of armed self-defense, which annoyed and scared the mainstream press. Just for the record, it doesn't annoy or scare me. I'm, I'm a radical, too, and I'm not a pacifist. I was trying to explain that in my comments to um, listeners yesterday. So it annoyed and scared the mainstream press that he was an advocate of armed self-defense. The New York Times couldn't resist calling him a bearded extremist with a gift for bitter eloquence the day after he was killed. That's the other thing that bothered people about Malcolm X was his eloquence. He was educated and articulate, and he could call a spade a spade. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I love the way Malcolm X characterized liberals compared to conservatives. Liberals were the friend, they were the smiling fox, and conservatives were the raving wolf, I think it was, and everyone knew that the conservatives were enemies, but the smiling liberals were no better because at the end of the day, both both wanted to eat you. All right, so he got what was asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Get it? I go to civil rights rallies and I put down the old D-I-A-R. 
the DAR, Daughters of American Revolution, a membership service organization exclusively for women blood-related to someone involved in the American Revolution, not only related, but they had to be white. The group has been condemned for its racist refusals to admit non-white members. So they make an excellent target for the narrator's condemnation. I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I'm old enough to know who all those are, and they're all entertainers. Harry Belafonte, a classic Calypso, classic Calypso crossover, hits Jump in the Line and Deo. And I love his Carnegie Hall album. I played it over and over on vinyl. Sidney Poitier, the first African-American to win an Academy Award, and I love his movies. Sammy Davis Jr., legendary interpreter of the Great American Songbook and the second suavest member of the Rat Pack after Frank Sinatra. I teach Broadway musicals, and the roots of Broadway musicals are, are fairly ugly with vaudeville and with minstrel shows. And so Harry and Sidney and Sammy came out of that tradition where white people would would um, allow black people to entertain them. Also, white people with black face would allow them to entertain them. So, so loving Harry and Sidney and Sammy doesn't say much about your lack of racism. I hope every colored boy becomes a star. And I, I grew up in the 60s hearing that reference, colored person or colored boy. One of Harry Belafonte's poignant lines from a song he sings is, Why does he still call me boy? The irony of this line is the contrast between the narrator's supposed anti-racist viewpoints and the prejudice and condescension of calling three grown men boys. Not only that, but also and especially that the narrator sees the only possible success of black men in society as singers or showmen, they cannot be successful politicians, businessmen, or lawyers. Women are not even mentioned. So here are those Harry, Harry Belafonte lyrics. Wake up, wake up, darling Cora. Want to see you one more time. The sheriff and his hound dogs are coming. I got to move on down the line. I don't know why, darling Cora. Don't know what the reason can be. But I never had found a single town where me and my boss man agree. I ain't a man to be played with. I ain't nobody's toy. Been working for my pay for a long, long time. How come he still calls me boy? Well, I'd rather drink muddy water and sleep in a hollowed out log than to hang around in this old town and be treated like a dirty dog. Well, I whopped that man, darling Cora, and he fell down where he stood. Don't know if I was wrong, darling Cora, but Lord, it sure felt good. If it wasn't so dark, darling Cora, you'd see tears trickling down my face. It breaks my heart, darling Cora, but I gotta leave this place. So there's some history behind I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star. But don't talk about revolution. That's going a little bit too far. Two years before the Beatles released Revolution, Oakes aptly anticipated the apathy that would come to dominate leftist popular cultures. Don't you know that you can count me out? Attitude.
So revolution, we talk about it a lot. It'll be interesting because when it comes right down to it, I'm not sure we're going to solve all our problems by voting. And that's where Malcolm X's words are going to come back to us and Phil Oaks' words and Bob Dylan's words. But don't talk about revolution. That's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I cheered when Humphrey was chosen. My faith in the system restored. Humphrey was chosen largely by the party bosses in the Democratic Party without winning any state primaries. So there is a hint of irony that his faith in the system was restored by what was essentially an undemocratic system. I'm glad that the commies were thrown out of the AFL-CIO board. In the late 40s and 50s, there was a series of purges of communists or alleged communists from major unions, including the CIO. And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. The liberal theoretically supports the rights of minorities as long as they don't have to personally interact with them or potentially drive down the value of their homes or have their kids be bused to go to other schools or have other kids, other people's kids be bused to go to their schools. That's a big indication of this love me, I'm a liberal attitude. Now we're back to Mississippi. Ah, the people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. It's a subject he knew well, having written one of the most scathing takedowns of Mississippi with Here's to the State of Mississippi. Now I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter? Don't they watch Les Crane? Les Crane was a radio and television celebrity from the early 60s who competed with Johnny Carson for ratings. Crane interviewed such figures as Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy, and Bob Dylan. And he was handsome. And he was very white. So it's interesting that the liberals are getting their information from Les Crane. But if you ask me to bust my children, I hope the cops take down your name. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Do you think liberals are different now than they were then? Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. Those were liberal at the time. I've learned to take every view. <laughs> C.S. Lewis has some words about people like that, too. That, that would be too long of a topic, though. Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. Harry Golden and Max Lerner were both liberal thinkers from the early 20th century known for their emphasis on social justice, they also were Jewish. I feel like I'm almost a Jew. And that was, that was racially condescending because liberals are famous for uh, appropriating ethnic identities with little appreciation for the realities of living as an ethnic minority in a dominant white Christian culture. I guarantee you that's still happening today. But when it comes to times like Korea, the Korean War, and a little history there, when the war comes along, the liberals forget what they stand for. Hmm, that's especially timely, isn't it? Usually because of the fear of seeming unpatriotic. 
This line reflects the broad support for the Korean War and wars in general by the Liberal Democrats. Socialists like Oaks typically opposed the Korean War, viewing it as an imperialist campaign by the U.S. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. When it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. I vote for the Democrat Party. They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send you and I'll send all the money you ask for, but don't don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Once I was young and impulsive. I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to the socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. But I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. The idea here is very condescending that socialists and socialist-leaning young people will grow out of it someday, like our favorite hippies did from Phil Oaks' time. Years after his death, it was revealed that the FBI had a file of nearly 500 pages on Oaks. Much of the information in those files relates to his association with counterculture figures, protest organizers, musicians, and other people described by the FBI as subversive. The FBI was often sloppy in collecting information on Oaks. His name was frequently misspelled O-A-K-E-S in their files, and they continued